I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in a special Veterans Day episode, we'll hear from Army Specialist Rocky Blyer. Blyer served in the infantry in Vietnam until an enemy grenade injured both his legs and sent him home. He made a full recovery and went on to win four Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So my name is Robert Patrick Rocky Blyer. I was 11 Bravo, um, spec four <laughs> when I got back um, and, uh, and served in Vietnam from uh, May 1969 to uh, August of 1969. So the backstory is that I grew up in a, a small Midwestern um, a town called Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, just to put it on the map, Appleton is about 30, 25, 30 miles from Green Bay. So as we were growing up, and I'm saying this in the latter part of the uh, of the 50s and into the 60s, um, and so when the Packers started to win uh, and football became uh, much more aware to a younger generation uh, because of television, so we were Packer fans. I grew up uh, in um, a bar. My father owned a, a bar. We lived right behind it. We uh, ultimately moved upstairs. So it was a two-story building. And, uh, and so we were one block from downtown. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a neighborhood kind of a, a deal. You grew up with the school, the Catholic school, which we went to was a block away. Uh, and so your friends were all in the neighborhood, as they say. And so... You know, you look back on it, it was a, maybe somewhat of an idyllic time. Um, and uh, you played organized sports um, because you organized it. There weren't any, um, <laughs> there weren't any little leagues uh, or Babe Ruth leagues or um, there were rec leagues by the recreation department. And or otherwise you would pick up uh, <laughs> your, your teams within the neighborhood and then we started playing the latter part of junior high school, let's say, in an organized uh, fashion um, at uh, the, the Catholic grade school at that time. Then, um, so it was the baby boomer move. And just to put things in perspective at that time was that there was a growth that was taking place of us younger kids that were coming in. Um, and so we had a brand new high school that was built 
called the Xavier High School, a new Catholic high school that was in the area. And so a lot of, of, of kids from around the area that had gone to Catholic grade schools then morphed into uh, this brand new high school. Um, and we had much success um, during that period of time. And so we had uh, won our championship and uh, ultimately we were the number one ranked uh, team in, in both football and in basketball uh, during that period of time. And because of that success, I get an opportunity to continue my education and I get to uh, go to the University of Notre Dame. And there was a big change that took place at that level as well. And so that change was um, a coaching change. Eric Parsegian came in as my my uh, freshman year, and all of a sudden he turns the program around. And by my junior year, uh, we win a national championship, and um, I get to be captain of the football team uh, my senior year. And uh, during that period of time, I only lost five games. <laughs> and so success was mounting one another. And because of that, I get to be drafted in the NFL by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And as I tell people, just to put it in perspective, I was not their first choice, nor their top 10 list. I, was the 417th person picked in the draft. I was the 16th round draft choice at, at that time, but I got a chance to be able to make the team and, uh, and ultimately the rest of the story goes on. So uh, in high school, or at least uh, in, in 1963, there was this conflict that was taking place over in the Far East in Vietnam. Um, and it's, you know, started to make the news and, we had gone over to help the French in that conflict because of a treaty that we had. So all of a sudden, you know, but you're, uh, so high school was taking place. There was military action taking place. So it became part of the news. Then we go on to college, we get a, a deferment, and then things start to escalate. So through that period of time from 64 to 68, my years in college, is that it was the somewhat son of a, of a, a attention. It was always in the news uh, as it expanded uh, and uh, grew, and you were part of that population that possibly could be drafted. So now all of a sudden, high school um, uh, friends that had dropped out of school or uh, didn't know what they were going to do, enlisted and or got drafted, and the draft was a big issue, um, then the war started to escalate, and because it escalated, uh, it became an unpopular conflict over there. Now the soldier at that time was then identified with with the conflict and not necessarily being praised as he is today. So it was just there. It was just always a part of your life. So when you talk about the military, yeah, it was kind of just friends were enlisted into different branches and or got drafted and were in Vietnam and served or came back. And um, so it was a part of your awareness factor uh, that this conflict was going on. So it was always around you. You know, I had friends that had dropped out of uh, college and, uh, and got drafted um, and weren't necessarily they had gone to Vietnam, but weren't necessarily in a combat unit. Uh, they were in support mechanisms or um, a part of the service, but they were still there. Um, so then the student movement started to take hold, and that was uh, college students getting involved in uh, anti-war demonstrations and uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
most of the feedback that I had received in, to some degree was, and, uh, nobody was a, none, anybody who was in the military, I should say, was not really opposed to what was taking place. It was just a part of where they were at that time, you know, that they were in the military, that uh, they were serving. Um, and so, I mean, at least that's the feedback that I received um, from those that I had uh, talked to. I got drafted, as I had made mention, by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And um, I was their 16th round draft choice. And so you're in training camp and you're, and, uh, and you're going through not knowing what was taking place, just trying to do your best and so on. And it was the latter part of the training camp, uh, as I say, the happiest day of my life at that moment in time, which was the head coach. After a meeting that I was in, Bill Austin was his name, um, and he had, uh, I was walking out of the meeting, and he said, can I talk to you for a moment? And so I said, oh, okay, fine. And so um, he pulled me aside, and he said, listen, uh, we got this letter in the mail. It was opened accidentally. It was to me, but it was open accidentally. And he said, uh, uh, we think you're good enough uh, to make this team and we will take care of this for you. Well, the letter was my 1A classification, which just meant I lost my student deferment and I was now eligible for the draft. Whatever take care of this meant in his mind, it was like, I'm good enough to make the team. So um, time goes by, a week goes by, two weeks go by, a month goes by. I hadn't heard anything kind of from the Steelers and we're just kind of doing our, our process. And um <clears throat> So, unlike today, maybe, but I go down to the Steeler office and uh, talk to the general manager, and I go, "Have you guys heard anything about this taking care of this for me?" And uh, oh, he said, "We're having a little problem. General retired. The congressman got defeated. All our contacts are, you know, uh, so but we're working on it. Whatever that meant as well." So in my mind, see, in my mind, which was that, and the only experience I had was through the Green Bay Packers. And so when I would be back home prior to going to training camp, there would always be an article in the paper about those uh, players that were in the in the reserve. And so they would go to two weeks during the summer, or they'd be on weekend calls um, as the regulation was at that time. So there were just little stories. And, you know, in the back of my mind, it goes, well, that's the possibility of what may happen if you make the team. So anyway, as time goes on, um, all of a sudden I slip, you know, through the cracks. Um, and it was after the 10th game of the season and uh, <laughs> was down to training camp. We were at the, the stadium and I was sitting on my stool, much like this, getting ready to go out to practice. When one of the equipment men hollered, Hey, Blair, uh, there's a letter over here for you. Now, you have to understand in the locker room, not any different than any other locker rooms, is that there was a, a table, and usually on that table was where all the fan mail would be deposited um, for the players. <laughs> when you're not on a winning team, there's not a whole lot of fan mail. And when you're the 416th 
pick of the NFL draft and nobody knows you exist playing on a losing team, there's not a whole lot of fan mail. And uh, so, you know, I was surprised that there was a letter and I walked over there and I picked it up, opened it up, slipped out the paper inside, unfolded it and said, greetings, we'd like to inform you that you've been inducted into the armed services of your country. <sighs> kind of came out of left field, let's say. And I knew it was hanging out there because I hadn't heard anything from the Steelers and it's a possibility and uh, things were getting kind of tight. But the kicker was to report the next morning at 7 a.m. to be inducted into the armed services. Now, I thought they're supposed to give you a week, aren't they at least? Well, it was post dated a week before, got lost in the mail. By the time I received it, it was to report the next day. So there was kind of a panic at that time to say, all right, fine, holy man. Um, and so eventually, eventually, I did report the next morning. Uh, they gave me 24 hours to get my stuff together. And so it really wasn't until the following morning when I was inducted. Now, Part of that was, you know, as I look back on it now, maybe part of the helpful thing was the reaction, you know, of having to be in a mode to, to deal with it immediately, meaning my life. Okay, I got to call my parents. I got to get this together. I got to get that together. Um, talk to Steelers, knowing that the following day I was going to be gone. So I packed my bag, did everything they had to do, um, and went and went to basic training and then went to AIT uh, and ultimately got my orders. Part of it wasn't you had to sit around, you know, thinking about, oh, what if this and, you know, so on. So you're in that uh, reactive mode of just dealing with the issues at that time and, uh, and moving forward. And so that was it. I didn't have time to question or, um, or wonder why. And so, uh, and so I, I am now a buck private in, in the armed forces. 1968 was the height of the war in Vietnam. We had the most personnel that was over there. It was over 500,000 troops uh, in Vietnam. So the escalation was um, to get more troops over there. So it came down and, you know, <laughs> so my MOS was, you know, 11 Bravo. Like everybody in our group was 11 Bravo. And so... Um, um, that was it, you know, so it was like your fate. Um, I got my orders, um, so I flew home, say goodbye, had a couple of weeks after AIT to report to in San Francisco um, to um, fly over to um, Vietnam. I joined the unit, but it, you, you, so we flew over. So yes, so it was a, a, the airline was packed with uh, young soldiers. Um, and, you know, it was it just it, everybody had a seat. Uh, your duffel bag was between your legs um, and um, you just sat there <laughs> until you landed in um, in Vietnam. So we landed. and I didn't know what to expect. You know, you landed and I didn't know there was fighting on the on the, you know, or, or what to expect um, at the airfield you know, whether we're shooting back and forth and so on. And so we planed, grabbed our bags, uh, got into a bus. The bus was taking us to uh, registration, wherever that was at the time. So there were, there, 
there were bars on the windows of the bus. And I was thinking, wow, what's happening here? What was taking place? You know, was there fighting on the way down? You know, was there shooting? None of that I knew. And, and you know, so somebody explained the fact that there were bars on it so that nothing could break or come through the, the windows as we were walking through. Uh, but that was my, my first experience. And so we got into uh, where we needed to report, um, got to our bunks and dropped our stuff off and went through the process. So when I got my, my assignment of where I was going to go, finally a helicopter picks us up and drops us off at the LZ. Um, and I was uh, attached to the, I was with the AmeriCal Division, the 196th Brigade, 4th of the 31st Infantry. I was in Charlie Company and I reported to Charlie Company. So I got to Charlie Company and um, so... We were on LZ West, one of the landing zones, and there was nobody there except for the artillery guys. All our our guys were down on a sweep off the LZ, and so I um, so I was hanging around until they came back up. And I remember my first impression was they just all were they were haggard and they were tired and they were climbing up the side of the mountain to come back after their sweep. Um, and the image in my mind was like every every military picture I saw, every World War II picture I saw uh, of these guys. Some, you know, had that uh, thousand-yard stare, um, just trying to exist, um, coming in. And I'm going, oh, wow. I mean, that opened my eyes. And so... Um, <clears throat> I was the first new guy to come in in three months to be attached to uh, that unit. And so um, saw the first sergeant, he came in, he put me with uh, uh, first squad and, um, and they said, okay, fine. And you're gonna be a grenadier. <laughs> Two days later, he said, okay, fine. Uh, this is what you're gonna be. You're not gonna you're going to carry the grenade launcher. We we're going to put you on the M60, but we don't need anybody over there. We need somebody to uh, be a grenadier. So this is what your responsibility is. And so that was uh, that was my first reaction at that time. And so then part of that was, as I said, we were up there for a period of time. You know, in our in the squad I was in, and we'd be taking uh, sweeps off of uh, the mountain and coming back up, and uh, and you just kind of got into the, the, into the mode of, uh, of just being there. You know, I, it, it was kind of interesting and, and, you know, it is that, you know, ultimately, ultimately the comparison is that it wasn't any different than any, um, um, training camp I'd gone through, uh, from an experience point of view. And, and I say this to some degree, whether it be in college, Basically, and or uh, in my one year uh, with the with the Steelers in training camp. But training camp is you know training camp, and so you're you're trying to survive. You're trying to make a team. You're trying to do in you know um, what is expected of you. You know you got assignments, uh, and so you kind of focus on 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 that aspect of it. Um, yeah, you might be tired. You have to run sprints. You got to do the conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's somewhat 
much like the military. Now all of a sudden you're focused in what you had to, you know, what you had to do. Or um, so there's a couple things as you're working through this is that how other people respond to the situation and or leadership. Now I'm 23 years old, so I think my lieutenant's 24 years old. Uh, the uh, other guys around me are maybe 18, 19, 20, 21. And um, so all we're doing is it, we're trying to survive and do our responsibility, whatever that may be. And you go through this process, um, going down on sweeps, coming back up on sweeps, you know, you're tired. Um, and ultimately, whether this would be part of this answer, but ultimately you have to find a reason. You have to find a reason why you're there. You have to find a reason why you may be shot and or die for something outside of defending our own land or being in our own home or whatever it might be. So now all of a sudden you're over there. And I don't know whether a lot of soldiers found that, that reason and whether or not it, it was the right reason, but you have to come up with why are you here um, and what are you willing to fight for or get out of this? And so I guess mine was that in some of those sweeps coming off the hills down in the villages, there were hooches, uh, little villages, um, and uh, there were just mamasans and babies um, and older people. And so the way, you know, I can remember coming through a small little encampment and they were um, boiling a, a hoof, like a steer hoof in a bucket of water. And that was their meal. Uh, and so you just thought, well, okay, fine. You know, if my presence here can help them maybe take one step forward rather than two steps backward, maybe that is well worth us being here. Simple as it may be and not in depth, but I think that it becomes important for each soldier to be able to find a reason outside of defending their country or for their country a personal reason why they are there and um, that they may lose their lives over. Not that that'll ever happen, but deep down inside, I think that somebody thinks about that. And so I, as simple as that may be, that, that became part of the reason, uh, or at least for me, an acceptance of, of being there. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. 
Now back to the show. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Your battalion, made up of four companies, had an area of operation in which they covered. So in that area, we operated from two landing zones, LZ West, as Ed may mention, and LZ Siberia. The landing zones were on top of hilltops or mountains, and that's where the heavy artillery uh, was located. And so that's where supplies would come in uh, for the troops also up there. So you would rotate a company. Each would be um, security around those uh, landing zones up on top, as two would be down in the field doing maneuvers and searching and, uh, and trying to follow or find the enemy. So then they would rotate. So you'd be down in the field and up on an LZ, then down in the field, up an LZ, usually maybe... 10 days to maybe two weeks deployment of, of that kind of a nature. So <laughs> as you come to learn is that in your, on the sweeps. So when you're on an LZ, then every day you would take a, uh, a platoon or a squad uh, would go down, take a sweep down into an area of operation around that base and then walk back up. Uh, in the evening. And so then that would rotate uh, while you're up there day after day after day after day after day. So you weren't doing it every day, but that was it. Now, one of the things about it is that when you're on the LZ, you're in a stationary position. So the Viet Cong knew where you were. So they knew those uh, coordinates. And so every day, uh, just about every day, there was always some um, action that would take place. So a every now and then, um, as you're up there pulling security guard, someone would have a, a what would you call it? A rocket grenade launcher. Um, and then all of a sudden, you'd hear an explosion. So the sound would be incoming, Okay, everybody know, and they would then walk the uh, the rockets up or the grenades up the side of the hill, and so it would hit one, explode, hit another, hit another, hit another, um, and then we'd return fire once we finally found where that location was. But that would that would happen sporadic while you're up on on the mountain in the valley when you're walking. Now you're moving, so you're moving, and the enemy's moving. And uh, unlike today, uh, because of the technology we have, uh, you know, you weren't as 
we weren't as viable on the field or on, on the ground doing doing uh, those sweeps out in the field. And because, you know, if you happen to run across one another, you might. So we'd come into villages and, um, and we'd check out the villages and, and so on and then move on and move on and we'd have an area of operation. So your day would be you get up, you, you know, <clears throat> get a cup of coffee, <laughs> you'd make it, you know, then you'd move out, you'd get to a point where, You'd have uh, uh, stop for quote lunch, so to speak, and then you'd move out of that area after a couple hours into uh, another area where you'd have a bivouac for the that evening. You set up a security guard, and you would do that and repeat that day after day after day as you move through that area of operation. So it was different places and different expectation, but at every place, you know, you had to pull guard duty within your platoon and or within your area. So you'd switch, you know, you'd be up for two hours and then your teammate would be up for two hours and then you have a third guy. And so you get like four hours sleep if you could. And then you just rotate, rotate through the evening um, until we got up in the morning and, and moved out to the next location. So the, no, the details of that day was that I were up on an LZ Siberia, our company is, and all of a sudden, let's just say it was over the weekend, all of a sudden um, we get a report that there's enemy activities, just, you know, I mean, I'm a grunt, I'm a, I'm, I'm a private, so all you do is get what's fed down to you. You don't know what's happening or why it's happening or whatever it is. So all of a sudden, we're on 24-hour alert. Now, 24-hour alert is, whoa, there's some stuff happening out here. That means nobody's on break. Everybody's alert. We're on 24 hours as best we possibly can to manage that. We may be moving out. So finally, as bits of information get down to where we are, um, and ultimately the story wasn't, I didn't find out all this until after the fact, um, but there was a movement by the NVA out of uh, North Vietnam to, they had a whole regiment that was moving down into the Hep Duck Valley. That's where we were located up in I-Corps. Um, and so this movement was moving down of, of, of regimental soldiers. So a Bravo company was in out in the field. Charlie Company, was I was with, was on LZ Siberia. We're on 24-hour alert. They got hit or were under attack. And all of a sudden, we are um, helicoptered or pulled together to get out and helicopter. We're flying down into the valley and our mission is to get to Bravo Company um, to give them the support they needed or whatever. So we're flying out in helicopters, get out, assemble. We're moving out through the late afternoon into the early evening. Uh, there's a firefight taking place. Helicopters are coming in. I can see a machine gun from the enemy. Uh, one of the helicopters got hit. So all this action, but it was taking place at night. Our mission was there to get and support Bravo Company. So by the time we get to them, it is late at night. And what 
bodies that uh, did not get removed by helicopters. Uh, we were now going to move them out of that spot. So we, our responsibility was to pull front and rear security and, um, and carry what dead that were left and out of that area. So we're trying to move that whole, what was left of, uh, of Bravo Company. So all of a sudden there was a body that was left. I grabbed another guy, said, come on, we got to take him out of here. I threw my uh, grenade launcher to uh, one of my friends behind us. And so we picked the body up. And as we're moving out, we had to cross the stream. And so there was a machine gun position on the stream. Now all of a sudden it opens fire and we're another firefight very quickly. After a period of time, the word was to... Uh, Let's leave the bodies. Let's move out as you know best we possibly can. So eventually we did move out and uh, we hook up with um, another company that was in the field. We set up a defensive position that night. Next morning, we're moving back. So our company uh, was going to go back to retrieve the bodies that had been left behind. And so it was a reinforced platoon uh, as we were moving forward. And the reinforced platoon was basically the command central. So our company commander uh, was with us and a couple of lieutenants um, and the radio guy and uh, the rest of our platoon. So we had gone back and we were walking on an open rice paddy. So we're coming onto this wooded area onto an open rice paddy when all of a sudden our point man saw movement across the berm and shots broke the stillness and the enemy started to run and he started to chase and pulling everybody out in the middle of that rice paddy when all of a sudden the machine gun starts to level the area. Bodies were diving left and right into the rice paddies that we were crossing. And so I jumped in one in front of me, uh, got to the end of it looked down, uh, four other guys were pinned down in an open rice paddy uh, as well. I did see the machine gun, or I could see where it was coming from. It was maybe 150 meters away up on the hillside. So as a grenadier, my responsibility is to get some firepower onto that position. So I rolled over my side, breached my grenade, um, and went to fire when I felt a thud in my left leg. And it started burn. <laughs> And it, and it bled. Um, at the same time, my, the, uh, the soldier behind me had hollered at me, rock, for, to get my attention. And I thought that he threw a stone at me that hit me in the thigh. And I was, <laughs> until it continued to hurt and hurt and hurt. And so I was hit for the first time that day. I discharged my round. Now I thought, okay. They hit you once, they're going to hit you again. So I moved behind some uh, hedgerow that was to the left of me, get a little more protection. So I got enough firepower um, um, on that machine gun position so that the four guys that were pinned down in front of me got out of there and moved back. <clears throat> and eventually we had uh, moved out of that rice paddy and back into the wooded area in which we had just uh, came out of. And we set up another defensive position and they probed our perimeter basically over a period of time. They probed our perimeter, got close enough. Uh, when out of the corner of my eye, I saw 
grenade had come flying through the air, end over end over end over end over end, and then hit my commanding officer right in the middle of the back. He was lying prone, uh, looking out over the, the field of fire, and boom, it hits him in the back, bounces off, rolls between my feet. As I get up to jump out of the way, it blows up and blows up between my feet and my legs. And uh, we're in another firefight until a sister platoon finally fought, fought its way down to, to get us out of there. They came down. Uh, there was a lull. So then they carried us out of there. So uh, I can remember lying there, uh, this reinforced uh, platoon, as I said, you know, came and um, the first guy that did, dove into where I was, he says, oh, you're all right. Yeah. Oh, we got a report that you'd, uh, you bought it, that uh, um, you and uh, you and the lieutenant had, uh, had uh, got killed. I'm glad you didn't. Boy, we'll get you out of here. Said, uh, don't worry, you'll be the first guy that I'll get you out of here. I said, okay, fine. Then he comes back to me and said, no, I'm sorry. The lieutenant's going to be the first guy. You're going to be the second guy. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, fine. So they um, dragged me out of there on a poncho liner. And uh, so four guys carried each corner, you know, and started carrying me through the evening. Now, we had a we had a distance to go. There were, I think, about a click or a couple clicks away um, to uh, where uh, the landing zone was. Uh, that we had, had secured earlier or that another company had secured. And that's where we're heading through the night. So they pulled me and pulled me and pulled me and pulled me through the night. Now, they'd been up just as long as we had. They'd been in a firefight as well, coming down uh, to get us out of there. So they were tired and it finally got to a point where they said, hey, we can't drag you any further. Don't worry, we'll send a, a, a structure back for you. And I said, okay, fine. And then an amazing story had taken place at, at that time or, or an action. And you don't think about it until afterwards, when all of a sudden a fellow soldier reaches down and um, picks me up and throws me over his shoulder and starts carrying me to the helicopter. And the helicopter was still a far way away. And so he would put me down. Um, my blood all over him, and he'd catch his breath and pick me up again and continue on until he got me onto that chopper, and I never saw him again and didn't know who he was or where he came from, where he lived, or or anything. But um, the interesting thing was that he was a soldier of color. Now, it may not mean much now in that society, but, you know, at that time, back in the 60s, I mean, a lot of... Uh, a lot of things were going on uh, from a, a social uh, basis. I mean, there was segregation still going on in, in colleges um, that uh, would not let uh, black uh, students uh, be there or sign up. And so now all of a sudden, here it is, you know, I have a, uh, a black soldier picking me up, not because he's black and I'm white, but it was like brother to brother and you know it was the, the immediacy of the time and you don't think about race you don't think about anything and I think that's one of the great things about the military it just levels the playing field for human beings to react with one another and as a fellow soldier and so that was uh, like we became you know we became brothers in that brotherhood of war so um, it, it was an interesting experience.
you know, people say, well, why, 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 you know, did you do it? I think the inner drive, the inner drive for me was to be able to come back and play football. I mean, because I wanted to, it was part of my identity or whatever it mean, but it became a driving force. Also, there were some lessons learned, I think, from my point of view, uh, as, uh, as, uh, as human nature. As I tell people, I said, you know, one of the things playing sports specifically, or not even playing sports, but just playing in the neighborhood, um, is that we all have bumps and bruises as we grow up. You know, you get scraped knees, you might sprain your ankle, twist your knee, um, you know, God forbid you should break a finger or whatever it is, you know, then you'd be in a cast. But there's a process that you learn, and that process is that you get hurt, it, it hurts, uh, you go see mom, she takes you to a doctor, doctor says, this is what we do, you know, then you rehab, it heals, and you're back out playing within a week or two weeks <laughs> thereafter. And so it's that kind of a mindset. So my mindset was that, okay, I'm injured. I didn't lose an arm. I didn't lose leg damage as it may be, but we've, um, I've been there before. So um, you just go through the process. And I think one of the things in that process is getting back, having an opportunity, getting back to work, getting back to your body back in shape as you best possibly can, um, not knowing what the future may be. The other thing is that I wanted to get to a point where I would erase those ifs that we carry around with us. If I would have done this, if I would have done that, if I wouldn't worked out more, et cetera, et cetera, it might have worked out. And so I went back trying to get my body back in shape as I was still in the military um, and, uh, and went through that process. And I came back to the Steelers um, in 1970. I got out of the service and um, I went back to training camp in 1970. I had to write Mr. Rooney to see whether I could be invited. And he said, yes, you know, come on back. Um, and so the interesting thing is that I was there for the whole period of time. Being the family that they were, they gave me an opportunity. And basically that was it. I went uh, as best I possibly could. I thought I was in pretty good shape, but two a days takes its toll. And ultimately they put me on injured reserve. I have another operation. They buy me a year. Come back the following year and I go through training camp again, a little bit better this time, and I make the um, taxi squad or the developmental squad, as they say now. So they bought me two years, two years to heal, two years to get bigger, stronger, faster, to come back or whatever it is. And so I come back in now um, in 1972. And I come back in 1972. I'm the leading ground gainer during the exhibition season in 1972. Um, and good enough to make the team, played special teams, never carried the ball the remaining part of that season. Came back in 73, uh, a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. And so in 1973, it was the biggest that I had been. I weighed 218 pounds coming back in the training camp. I bench pressed 465 pounds. I squatted over 600 pounds. And again, I was a leading ground gainer during the exhibition season. Got to carry the ball once during that season. But in our lives, what we decide or how we look at things is that, you know, to come back the following year, again, to come back in 1974, 
I would have to fight with every free agent, draft choice, and rookie to do so. And I just didn't think it was fair. Not that life's fair, but uh, I thought maybe maybe it's a sign. Maybe my life's going in another direction. We do this at time. You know, I did come back. I did make the team. I got a chance to play. Maybe not to the level I thought, but hey, that wasn't part of the deal. And after the 73 season, I left the Steelers to find my life's work, not to come back. And um, as that story goes, I get a call from uh, Andy Russell, who was our captain of the time, as the all-pro linebacker. He was coming in Chicago. That's where I was living. And he said, um, let's get together. There's a sports banquet taking place, sponsored by the NFL. Guys are coming from all over leagues. I mean, when you come, I hadn't seen you. It'd be great to get together. So I'm not going back in my mind. I declined. I, he pushed, I declined. And then he asked me why. And I said, well, I quit. I'm not, I'm not going back. And I remember him saying, you can't quit. He said, if you quit, what you've already done is you've already made a decision for that coaching staff. Do you like them well enough to make decisions for them? He said, no. Your responsibility, if this is what you want to do, is that you make them make a decision. You back them in the corner. You give them every reason to either keep you or release you, but you don't cut yourself. The reality of this game is that we're all expendable. The reality of this game is we all can be cut at any time. But if this is what you want, then you don't cut yourself. Maybe it was just the arm twisting I needed, and I went back. And everything that I had perceived oh, did take place. And I had a fight with every free agent, draft choice, and rookie once again to make the team. And I made the team, a leading ground gainer during the exhibition season. Now, I say that just to put it in context. The reason I was a leading ground gainer wasn't because of the fact I was bigger, better, faster than all the other running backs. No, it was a simple fact that during that exhibition season, I played more than anybody else. I carried the ball more than anybody else because they're trying to make a decision on me. And uh, given those two simple facts, I better be the leading ground getter because all they were providing for me was an opportunity. And I made the team. I was the fifth running back out of four at the beginning of the season. But things happen, as we well know, in our lives and especially in sports. An injury here, an injury there, and all of a sudden I find myself uh, getting a chance to play. Then I find myself in a starting role. And the rest <laughs> becomes history. And uh, we go to the Super Bowl for the first time that year, 74. And we play six more years, Franco and I and Bradshaw on that backfield, and we win three more Super Bowls. And so you become part of that, the starting team, because of an opportunity that uh, somebody pushed you through the door, somebody gave you a chance to be able to do uh, it, and you have to take advantage of it. That was specialist Rocky Blyer. In honor of Veterans Day, Blyer and I asked that you consider donating to help veterans in need. The National Veterans Foundation provides assistance to veterans with needs including medical treatment, PTSD counseling, VA benefits advocacy, food, shelter, employment, training, legal aid, suicide intervention, and more. Visit nvf.org to learn how you can help. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.